And let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask uh, this morning as we come now to your word that you would show us what it truly means to be successful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, turn with me, if you will, to your Bibles. Uh, You'll find a Bible in the pew rack right in front of you. And the passage we're looking at this morning is also in the worship folder. We're looking at Romans chapter 7 and from verses 1 through to 4. Romans 7, verses 1 through to 4. I wonder what is your definition of success? How would you define success? Here's one definition uh, I came across, which is uh, the following. A successful man is the man who earns more than his wife can spend. One definition of success, perhaps not the most politically correct definition. How would you define success? Well, let's look at this passage together and we will discover what it means to bear fruit for God. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Perhaps uh, you saw in the news this week that a South African politician publicly blamed Christianity for the problems of his country. Such charges have become more common. A few years ago, there was a book that was produced under the title, God is Not Great. And even in this country, America, with all its great history of Christianity, It is not always apparent that uh, Christianity is seen as occupying the high moral ground anymore. And of course, around the globe, Christians are being persecuted. At a more personal level, as a pastor, when I talk to people about their experience of going to churches, they'll sometimes say to me that they wonder how it is going to make any real improvement to their lives. Is Christianity actually the definition of what it means to be successful? You come to church, you sing an upbeat song, you feel energized. You go out excited to serve God, change the world before the next day is finished. You've looked at a picture you wish you had not. 
You got angry at one of your children without good reason. You've argued with your wife about something petty. And you're frustrated that the theory about God doesn't seem to translate into practical, abundant living. So is Christianity really the best way to bear fruit for God? It all depends what you mean by Christianity. Now, chapter 7 of Paul's letter to the Romans is the most famous chapter in the whole book. It is also the most controversial. The whole chapter is about the law. The word law appears 29 times in 25 verses. Law, 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 law. And I won't say it 29 times, but you get the point. It's a little subtle hint from the apostle that the main point is law. You knew you were going to get some complicated exegesis this morning. It is Paul's argument about the way that the law is fulfilled in Christ and us united to Christ so that now we can bear fruit to God. It is divided into three sections. Verses 1 to 6 contrast living under the law with the new way of the Spirit. Verses 7 to 12 offer a personal story in the past tense. Verses 13 to 25 offer a personal story in the present tense. And right there is the locus of the controversy, which we will deal with when we get to those uh, verses. But today, we're looking just at verses 1 to 4, because verses 5 to 6 are critical to understand the whole chapter, if we're to grasp the meaning of what Paul's saying, and they require a whole single sermon to explain. It was either that, or I could preach for two hours, which I would enjoy, but you might not. Throughout this chapter, Paul is rejecting two common errors with relation to holiness and the law. He is rejecting what is called antinomianism against the law, anti-the law, antinomianism. That's the idea that the law has entirely disappeared and Christians do not anymore need to obey God's moral law. Well, this is contrary to Christian teaching because it's contrary to Jesus' teaching who said that not one part of the law would disappear and that he had come to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. But Paul also here implicitly is rejecting the other extreme which is equally common among Christian teaching about holiness This time, not the libertarians who say that love is the only rule and that we can do whatever we like, but now Paul also is rejecting legalism. Legalism is the doctrine that we must obey the law or be condemned. And if antinomianism is a common teaching in Christian circles, legalism is no less common today. And Paul here in this chapter is implicitly over and over again showing that legalism is wrong and does not lead to bearing fruit for God. Instead, Paul here is proclaiming in this chapter what I call gospel fruit. That is, spirit-filled, Christ-united, law-fulfillment 
that we are free and empowered by the gospel to gradually and continually grow in our faithfulness to God, our obedience to God, and therefore our fruitfulness for his glory, gospel fruit. The four verses in front of us today contain three elements that show us holiness is the fruit of belonging to Christ, not living under the law. That's the theme today. Holiness is the fruit of belonging to Christ, not living under the law. So I will explain why the passage is teaching us that, and then at the end give us gospel strategies for holiness. So this passage explains that holiness is the fruit of belonging to Christ, not living under the law, by a principle, an illustration, and then fruits. First, a principle of law. So having shown in chapter 6 that justification by faith leads to a fruitful lifestyle, he talks about fruit there at the end of that chapter, because of our union with Christ as our new master, describes us as slaves of God, Paul now turns to another way of showing that those who trust in Jesus will bear fruit for God, and he introduces this next step in his argument by saying, or do you not know, brothers, indicating that this is another way of showing the same thing, namely that those who trust in Jesus are united to Jesus and therefore have a fruitful lifestyle. He's assuming that they are familiar with this principle of law that he's introducing by means of a question. He says he is speaking to those who know the law. What does that mean? What it could mean that Paul was speaking at this point to Jewish believers. Some people think that. Or it could mean that in the Roman church there were both God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who had attended synagogue services before they were converted to Christ, and well-taught Christian disciples who'd been explained the Bible and therefore had an understanding also of the law. They're not ignorant of the law, in other words. And the principle Paul states is as follows. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, this is such a basic principle. It applies to all law, Mosaic law, Old Testament law, any kind of law that you could possibly imagine. No law is binding on us once we are dead. And so this is the principle that Paul is bringing in now by means of a question that assumes that they know the answer is that the law is not binding on a person once he has died. Second, an illustration from marriage. Now Paul illustrates this principle from marriage. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife that lasts for life until death do us part. And so this law with relation to marriage illustrates the principle that the law only binds you while you are alive, a principle that Paul is now using to show that those 
who trust in Jesus bear fruit for God. When you're married, you're bound to your spouse. But once your spouse dies, you're released from this law of marriage. Now, Paul here doesn't mention divorce at all, that controversial and difficult topic. We need to go elsewhere in the Bible to discover what the Bible teaches about that. It's an illustration, an illustration that Paul elaborates further in verse 3. He writes, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Well, so far, so clear. The law is only binding on us while we are alive. For instance, when someone dies, their wife is no longer bound to them, and the wife is free to remarry. We, we know this. They knew this. It's an illustration. Third, fruit for God. Then comes Paul's conclusion from this principle, which he has illustrated by the law of marriage. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, so he's comparing, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, my friends, many people find Paul's teaching here rather confusing, so let me uh, try to explain it for us. Obviously, Paul is drawing a comparison between marriage and a Christian's relationship to God. He makes that clear by beginning the verse by saying, likewise, indicating that he's drawing a comparison with his marriage illustration. But what is the nature of this comparison? How is a Christian's relationship to God like a married woman who is only bound to her husband while he lives and who is free from that marriage if her husband dies? What is the nature of this comparison? Well, it evidently has something to do with death breaking a previous legal contract. So as a woman whose husband has died is no longer married to her dead husband, likewise, a Christian is no longer married to the law, and so can now belong to Christ. That much is relatively clear. But Paul does not say that the law has died, for it has not. Jesus taught that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. That would have been a strict one-for-one -one correlation between the illustration and the teaching he is illustrating, but he doesn't say that. What he says is, we have died to the law. And so most scholars conclude then that we should not be literalistic with the details of this illustration. It's not an allegory where every detail has a specific meaning. It's an illustration with a single main point, namely that the law has no binding hold on someone who has died. So Paul then is saying, as a woman whose husband has died, is free to marry another. So, as you have died to the law, you are now free to belong to Jesus. Now, this then prompts three questions among attentive listeners. How, why, and what? 
How does the body of Christ, or Jesus' death, free us from the law? Because as Christ lived the perfect life and lived under the law in every respect, keeping all its commands, the Gospels make that clear, so when Christ died, He completed the law, fulfilled it, and paid its penalty for us lawbreakers, and therefore we, in our union with Christ, also died to the law with Him, so that as He was raised from the dead, we are free from the condemnation of the law and free to belong to Christ. So that's the answer to how. Why? Why? Why must we be free from the law? Because, as Paul says in verse 5, the fruit of the law is for death. So Old Testament believers, get this, Old Testament believers were always saved by grace through faith. Paul taught that in Romans chapter 4. David believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, so did Abraham. The law was never intended to give saving life. It was designed to convict of sin. And even in a sense, as Paul has very riskily said in chapter 5 verse 20, increase sin in order to lead us to God in sort of desperation for salvation. So how are we set free from the law? Christ kept the law and paid the penalty for lawbreakers like us. Why must we be set free from the law? Because the law convicts of sin but does not save from sin. And then the third question attentive listeners ask is, in what sense are we free from the law? Certainly not in every sense, for that would be antinomianism. In fact, as Paul will teach in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, we in Christ have the law fulfilled in us as we increasingly obey God. For while the law commanded obedience, it was not able to give fruit for obedience. But now in Christ, we have a new husband who is virile enough. This is the illustration. For us to bear fruits of obedience like children from a marriage. So the law tells us what we have to do, but doesn't give us the power to do it. You know, thanks very much, law. But in Christ and by His Spirit, we have the power to obey God. Not because we must obey or be condemned. No. Christ took all the curse of the law. We're free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But now in Christ, we want to please God. Our hearts have been changed by His Holy Spirit. We have the power to please God. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, we're joined mysteriously to Christ. And through His power, we now bear fruit for God. How? Christ died, paid the penalty for the law. Why? The law cannot save you. In what sense are you free? You're free from condemnation and free to obey God in the power of Christ. 
And so the principle of the law is that when we die, the law no longer has hold on us. The illustration from marriage is that this same principle works with relation to when a spouse dies, the other partner is free to marry. And the fruit for God comes as we're united with Christ as our husband, died with him to the law, raised again belong to him, and therefore in Christ, mysteriously, we have the power to bear fruit for God. And so I believe this passage is teaching us that holiness is the fruit of belonging to Christ, not living under the law. Now, one time... Uh, Charles Spurgeon was um, on a Sunday school bus, and uh, Spurgeon was, of course, a figure who demanded attention wherever he went, so everyone knew he was on the, on the bus sitting at the front. He was known by his congregation as the governor, in fact. So there he was, sitting on the front of the Sunday school bus, when a man behind him, let us call him Mr. Brown, began to smoke a cigar. Spurgeon turned round to Mr. Brown and said, Mr. Brown, are you not ashamed to be smoking on the Sunday school bus? Mr. Brown was, you know, I'm so sorry, and put it away. A few moments passed. Spurgeon then reached into his pocket and pulled out the biggest cigar you could possibly imagine and started to smoke it. Of course, everyone on the bus is now wondering what on earth's going on, you know. <laughs> Mr. Brown eventually taps the governor, Spurgeon, on the shoulder and says, What are you doing, governor? Spurgeon says loudly enough for everyone to hear, Well, Mr. Brown, you obviously were ashamed. I am not. (laughs) He put it like this. I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins. I commit. Have you found that? He referred it to quiet times. The habit of regular morning and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life, but the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender unto bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. 
indeed. So as we come then to the end of this sermon, let us compare a legalistic strategy for holiness, which Paul says bears fruit for death, verse 5, with Christ's strategy, which bears fruit for God, verse 4. Legalistic strategy is fruit for death because it accuses, isolates, and is futile. It accuses. We do not keep the law. Therefore, we accuse ourselves and each other. You can know when legalism abounds because accusation resounds. None of us keeps the law. None of us is righteous in our own selves. The law comes in and accuses. And when we attempt legalistic strategies for holiness, it will inevitably then lead to a culture of accusation and recrimination. Some of this will be internal. We will accuse ourselves. Some of this will be spiritual. The devil will accuse us. Some of this will be mutual. We will accuse each other. But legalistic strategies for holiness always lead to accusation for no one keeps the law. Legalistic strategy is not only fruit for death because it accuses, but also because it leads to isolation. It isolates As we know we do not keep the law, we isolate ourselves from other people to avoid feeling guilty. You can always tell when legalistic strategies for holiness are being used because community begins to break down. This is true in religious community. It's true also in secular society. When something goes wrong, we accuse each other. See it in the news all the time. Whose fault? Who is to blame? And then we inevitably hide from each other and isolate ourselves from each other. We need to find a scapegoat because we know we're not righteous, and so we go looking for someone to isolate and blame. Legalistic strategy, accusation, isolation, fruit for death also because it is futile. There's no power in the law to make someone holy. There's only power to accuse and isolate. And if you use the law to try to make you holy, it will lead to futility. Using the law to make you holy is like using a scalpel to sew up a wound. It will not work. You'll only cut yourself further. It'll be frustrating. You'll be tempted to give up. It won't make any difference. You'll feel distant from God and even angry at God. Nothing will seem like it works for the law because it commands things which we cannot in our own strength achieve. We only generate within us the frustrated desires to do wrong. A sign will say, do not touch the grass. Now you want to touch the grass. The law says, do not covet. Now you realize that you do covet and you want your neighbor's house or field or car or new super large screen iPhone 6 big enough to double as a brick. Accusation, isolation, futility. It is the legalistic strategy to bring about wholeness, which is what Paul calls bearing fruit for death, verse 5. 
Christ's strategy for holiness instead bears fruit for God. Verse 4. It is grace. He says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 4. That is, this is not something you did or can do or will do or have the power to do. God must do it through Christ's death and resurrection. It is grace. It is God's action. There's a radical change that must take place in the human life in order for us to bear fruit for God. You cannot get that fruit by new methods by religious observances, by ceremonies and rituals. It is a divine act of God. So many people go wrong at this point. Instead of asking God for his power and depending upon him, they attempt to do it in their own strength. But the first principle of fruitfulness for God is to realize that God must do it. We are dependent upon him for his power and his strength and therefore we need to acknowledge our weakness, humbly ask him for his power to enable us to bear fruit. It is grace. Christ's strategy is relationship. Verse 4, so that you may belong to another. Many Christians think as soon as they fail that their relationship with Christ is broken. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither danger, nor sword, not evil, not sin. You belong to Christ. And that is unchangeable and unshiftable. And people say those who hear that message will go out and be lazy and not work for God. No, the reverse is true. To bear fruit for God, you must realize that you are secure. God has paid the price for your sins through Christ's death and the resurrection. There is no condemnation. Whatever you do, you are now free from condemnation. And it's as we realize that, that we really, truly belong to Christ, that we're enabled to bear fruit for God. We now want to please Him. We now work hard to please Him. We now love Him, for He first loved us. There was a woman who had a husband who was always telling her to do things. Fanny had a long list, a bullet point list of all the things that she was meant to do. There are 10 or 20 items on this list. They're always increasing one after the other. This husband died, and then some years later she married again, and this next husband just loved the woman. Just adored her. One day as she was going through the house, she happened to open one of the drawers in a, in a cupboard and she pulled out the list of all the things that the husband who was now dead had insisted that she do. And as she read down the list, she realized that now she was doing every single one of them.
she was loved. And so loved in return. You are loved with an everlasting love that cannot be broken and from which you cannot be separated. And when that message truly hits home that you belong to Christ, you will find not that you do less for Him, but now you do more. Nothing can separate you from Him. You are His. No demon can tear you away. Sometimes people come to me and say, Pastor, do you think that's demonic? And I want to say, yeah, probably. So what? No demon can tear us away. Consider this. If your sin this week could have separated you from the love of Christ, then why did Jesus die on the cross for your sins? You think it wasn't sufficient? You belong to Christ and you cannot be separated from him. Christ's strategy is grace, it is relationship, and it is purpose. Look at verse 4 again. In order that we may bear fruit for God. If you are a Christian, here's how you know. The number one thing you now desire is to bear fruit for God. You want to please Him. You have had your heart changed, and you now desire the things of God. You love to come to church and be with God's people. You love to hear the Bible explained. You don't want fluff. You don't want superficiality. You want the real thing. You want to understand God's Word. You love to hear from God because He loves you. You love to hear how the gospel is making progress through missionaries. You, you want to hear more about that. You, you love to see others come to know Jesus. Your whole life now has this purpose, a purpose of honoring God by bearing fruit for God. You're like a fruitful vine. And this image of fruit actually can be traced all the way through the Bible. In the beginning, God gave trees with fruit, and the forbidden fruit was eaten, and it caused death. Then fruit came from God through the promised land, which was a land abounding in good fruit. A good tree, Jesus taught, bears good fruit. A bad tree, bad fruit. And Paul tells the Romans that he wants to go to Rome, that he might have fruit with them there too, as among the other Gentiles, and then he wants to collect from them money to give to the poor in Jerusalem, a collection that he also calls in the original fruits. 
And this fruit here of obedience to God, which he calls fruit for God. And then at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation shows us fruit in the middle of that great street of the city. On each side of the river will stand the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And it's even its leaves, even its leaves are for the healing of the nation. So there is fruit abounding, beautiful life for God, not because of a legalistic strategy of accusation and isolation and futility, fruit for death. No, because of Christ's strategy, grace, relationship, purpose. Let me conclude with a couple of last comparisons. Here's one from CNN in 2000. And 12, a CNN report said this, the epic downfall of cycling star, once an idolized icon of millions around the globe, stands out in the history of professional sports. The man to which they were referring between 1999 and 2005 held seven consecutive Tour de France titles. But in 2012, he was stripped of those titles in a protracted doping scandal. I do not know the causes of his downfall, but that does not strike me as the definition of success. Compare another sporting hero, named NBA Most Valuable Player on May the 4th. In a column he wrote last year for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes website, he said that he loves to point people to the one who died for our sins on the cross, I know I have a place in heaven waiting for me because of him, and that's something no earthly prize or trophy could ever top. You want to bear fruit for God? Belong to Christ. Let's pray together. And so, our Lord, we bow before you and ask in humility that by your power you would cause us to bear abounding fruit for God. We pray that for our home lives, that our children will grow up to follow you. We pray that for our marriages, that we would be symbols and signs of Christ's love for the church in the way we relate to each other. We pray that for our small groups, that they be united around your word and 
passionate in their outreach. We pray that for our adult communities, that there would be places where your word is taught and we are trained. We pray that for as we gather together, that your Holy Spirit would just move among us through your word and heal the brokenhearted and break the proud. We pray that for our personal lives, that we would grow in holiness. that we might be those who bear fruit for God. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.